0: Thanks, Kristen. G'day everyone. I'm Ben. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, just a couple of things before we get into it. Uh, Adam's already prayed for um, elderly, older Australians at risk of homelessness. Uh, we have a significant ministry to people at risk of homelessness, uh, many of whom live in boarding houses around Petersham and in the inner west. Boarding houses are a bit of a nightmare. Uh, They're very hard to regulate by the government, partly because the government wants them to stay unregulated so that they're easy to get into. (laughs) The problem with something that's easy to get into is it's often easy to get out of, Uh, so it's a very insecure housing situation. Uh, Some of our nearest neighbours are the most at risk of homelessness. There's a row of boarding houses on Crystal Street just behind us here, And over the years, they've been um, significant places for people at risk of homelessness to live. Uh, SBS did a show about them called Filthy Rich and Homeless a couple of years ago. You can Google that. Um, But over the last decade, they've been selling off. And as people buy them, they have to keep them as boarding houses. But what they can do is renovate them And under the umbrella of a boarding house, they can rent them out to international students uh, for much higher rents than homeless people. Uh, Two of the remaining few boarding houses on Crystal Street have just recently been sold. And so there's maybe two dozen people, mostly middle-aged men, uh, who have got three weeks' notice. They're out. And because they've lived in boarding houses for 15 years their rent history is not particularly helpful um, and the like so pray for them and pray for our ministry to them some of them have been coming here for meals for for a decade or so uh, and some of them are quite stressed as you can imagine about what they're going to do and where they're going to go Uh, adam also prayed for anglicare I don't know if you know this, Anglicare has an aged care boarding house just on the outskirts of our parish. So down on Parramatta Road, just across from our parish into the parish of Leichhardt, the old Taverners Hill pub, Anglicare bought and turned it into a really good boarding house for about two dozen people. And some of our uh, social workers helped get elderly people off the streets and into that facility. It it has the reputation amongst the boarding house community and boarding house workers as the model. If only we could do this more. Uh, So pray that we could do that more. Anglicare has done the same thing in Katoomba and in Botany, but we need more of them. Our population is ageing and we have significant numbers of elderly people who are either on the street Or at risk of being on the street so pray for that and pray for our church's ongoing ministry to them all right let's jump in we're coming to the end of Jacob's story the the genealogy the family line of Isaac Uh, Adam also prayed from Psalm 119 so why don't we pray again and ask for God's help How sweet are your words to our taste, our Heavenly Father, sweeter than honey to our mouths. By your law we gain understanding and therefore hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. So make that a reality for each of us tonight, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, Over the last couple of years, one of the books I've talked about uh, a few different times is a book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. It's the book that keeps coming into my brain as we work through the story of Jacob, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, because I'm struck by the way in which God works in Jacob's life over a very long time, decades and decades, And it's a picture of Jacob's long obedience in the same direction. What are you talking about, Ben? Jacob's obedience in the same direction? I think it's a wonderful picture, the story of Jacob, that the Christian life being one of long obedience in the same direction might look through different seasons like you're going up and down and side to side like that you've stopped in your tracks and you're not going anywhere, or like God is absent and his promises have failed. But just because your Christian life is going up and down, just as your obedience might feel hot and cold, as long as you're facing in the same direction, in the direction of the Lord Jesus and the promises of God by his word and spirit, then you know that you are going in the right direction. It doesn't matter how fast you're going. Some days it's going to feel like you're running and that you're running like, you know, the days that you run, the days that I don't really know very many of, where you go for a run and you just feel like you could run all day. Your feet are light. Your breathing's easy. I don't know those days. (laughs) Right? Right? And then there's other days where it feels like you're running through concrete, like you've never done this before, like what is going on? It can feel like that in the Christian life. Or maybe you appreciate more an artist's illustration. You know how when you get up and you have inspiration and you kick all your goals and you paint something beautiful, you, you make something, and there's other days where you wake up and you think, I can't even think of what to do. It's like I've forgotten how to do this. Christian life can feel like that. Where progress is slow, frustrating, and other times it feels like the wind is in your sails. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this. He said the providence of God watches over our salvation even when it seems most to it, when it most seems to sleep. The providence of God continues to watch over your salvation, even when you feel like God has maybe fallen asleep. We finished uh, chapter 34 last week, and we noted that in that whole chapter, an awful, awful picture of human depravity and sin, God seems to be absent. He's not even mentioned, He's not called upon, He doesn't speak, He doesn't command or command anything. God seems to be absent, he seems to be asleep, he seems to be forgetful of the promises that he has made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, promises to keep his people and to restore the world by his grace. But the providence of God watches over our salvation even when it feels most asleep. And so at the end of that mess, with Jacob no, no doubt feeling like he is a failure, because he is, and like God is absent because of the evil and the mess that he finds himself in, at the end of that scene, where you can imagine Jacob throws up his hands and says, where is the faithful God? Where is the providential God, who rules the world, the one who made promises to me, the one who said, I will keep you and bring you home, where is he? Well, the Christian life is about long obedience in the same direction. And it's persevering through the mess that Jacob then hears the voice of the Lord. So here's the thing we want to see tonight three things. That God speaks graciously. That Jacob responds with repentance and faith. And that God remains faithfully committed to his promises. That is such an important thing. And hopefully if we can cling to that at the end, we'll be better for being here tonight. Let's see those three things. God speaks. Pick it up with me at chapter 35, verse 1. And God said to Jacob... Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. It's interesting that God speaks into this situation before Jacob called upon the Lord, before Jacob has made any movement towards God at all. God takes the initiative and he speaks to reveal himself and later in the chapter to confirm his promises to Jacob. He calls on Jacob in the midst of that mess. Where are you, Lord? What are you doing? God says to Jacob, keep going. Finish what you started. Go to Bethel, where you were meant to go in the first place. Go to Bethel, the place that I promised to be with you at. Go to Bethel, the place where I said I would bring you to. Finish what you started. Keep going, Jacob. The call to Jacob in the midst of the mess, feeling like his family's failed, he's failed his family and that God is missing, the call is return to the Lord, return to Bethel, fulfill your vow and keep your allegiance to God. So Jacob responds, verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let's go up to Bethel where I'll build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob responds because God has answered him in his darkest hour. That despite his failure, that his family has failed and he has failed his family, God has not abandoned him. And so the call to repentance and faith, the call to return to God, which is the call that remains on all of our lives and and everyone in the world, to turn to the Lord away from sin, and away from selfishness, to come back to the God who made us and loves us. That is the call that Jacob responds with, responds to, and calls his family to join him in. This collective act of repentance. And part of that repentance, turning back to the Lord and their allegiance to the God of all faithfulness, is to throw off all the things that continue to trip them up to get rid of the idols that they've still got in their back pockets, to commit wholeheartedly, to have an undivided heart in their allegiance to the God of all faithfulness, to hold on to him and to not cling to the security that they're seeking in this world, but rather the security that's found in God's promises. What are the idols? Well, no doubt they've got plenty of idols from when they plundered Shechem, and took all their statues and their wealth, Jacob says, get rid of it. We don't want the fruit of evil to be the thing that we're clinging to. Get rid of it. What were the other idols? Remember when they left Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, they stole his false gods, his idols, they stuck them in their saddlebags? Get rid of it. Don't cling to the things of this world. Don't cling to the false gods where you're seeking peace and security and comfort and wealth. Get rid of that and cling to God alone. I wonder if you can feel the sting of that charge to let go of the things of this world in which you might seek peace or comfort or security in order that you might cling to God alone. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this, he says, "'An idol is anything more important to you than God, "'anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, "'anything you seek to give give you what only God can give you, "'anything that is so central and essential to your life "'that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living.'" We all have idols. Again, the great Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. Things that we seek to cling to. Things that we seek from this world that only God can give. Jacob uses the same kind of language that the New Testament does about idols, to take them off, to change your clothes, Stop wearing the things that keep you from trusting in God. When the New Testament talks about what it is that we're to take off and what we're to put on, often it talks about those deep emotions or those desires of our hearts. They're the things that we need to root out and get rid of. Things like anger and rage and malice and lust and envy. And the reason I think that the New Testament talks about getting rid of those deep emotions and desires of our heart is because, again, as Tim Keller says, if you pull up the roots, if you pull up your emotions by their roots, you will often see that there's an idol attached to them. So you pull up the idol of envy, uh, the emotion of envy, and you see the idol of materialism attached to it. Pull up your anger and what do you see? Maybe the idol of control attached to it. If you pull up your greed, you might see that money is attached to it. You pull up lust and you see that you've made an idol out of sex. Coming through the great turmoil that they've lived through, Jacob says to his family of promise, get rid of anything else that you're seeking to cling to, that you're seeking peace or comfort or security in other than God. Let go of those things and cling to God alone. Let go of those things. Take them off so that we might go up to Bethel and worship God alone. That's their repentance and faith. And as they head towards Bethel in new allegiance and fresh fresh faith in the God of all faithfulness, we see in verse eight, almost an interruption to the story uh, as we're introduced to a new character, that of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, uh, uh, Jacob's mother. And she died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. It's like a little picture of the fact that the generation is changing. That we're heading to the end of this story, of this family line, and we're looking towards the future. There is change coming, generational change coming. And as we sit in that kind of transition period at the end of this family line, as they return to Bethel in the promised land and we see the family of promise established where God told them to go, God then speaks once more to confirm his promises that he remains faithfully committed to the promises he has made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, his promise to fix the world ultimately through the Lord Jesus. To have his people in his place under his loving rule and care for his good purposes. Let's see what God says in verse 9. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you and I will give you this land, this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar in the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. God recommits to his promises. He is faithfully committed to do what he said to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The hope of the world still rests with this family of promise, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But did you notice as God recommits to be faithful to these promises, as he restates once again, be fruitful and multiply I will give you this place. I will make a great nation out of you. People, place and blessing. God makes those promises once again. But do you notice that he adds something to it? That not only will nations come from this family of promise, but kings to rule over God's kingdom forever. And the question that is in our mind is who will be the one that will carry on the family line of blessing and through whom kings would come who are ultimately tasked with crushing the serpent under his heel? And that question becomes even sharper as we get to the, towards the death of Isaac and the death of Rachel. Who will carry on this family line, the family blessing, the hope of the world? Pick it up with me at verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. And while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. And this isn't Jacob just being a husband and a father who doesn't listen. I think she said, Benjamin. No, she said, Benoni, oni son of my sorrow. And as Rachel, the beloved of Jacob, dies, and another son, the 12th son, the 12th tribe of Israel is born, Jacob says, no, he is not son of my sorrow." He is son of my blessing. He is son of my favour. He is son of my strength. He won't be defined by the sorrow of grief and loss that exists in the death of his mother in childbirth. He will be defined as the son of favour because he is a picture of God's blessing of God keeping his promises, of God doing what he's promised to do. He is the God of all faithfulness. This is a son of favour, not a son of sorrow. One of the great tragedies of our culture, I think, is that we pretend that grief and loss don't hurt. Instead of having funerals, we have celebrations of life which is sometimes a positive thing, but sometimes it's a pretending thing, trying to pretend like death isn't tragic and awful and sad. And if you go to funeral parlours and chapels at crematoriums, they feel sterile, and we have curtains that seek to hide dead bodies. And I think we need to acknowledge the pain of grief and loss. We need to have funeral services. We need to acknowledge that death is an enemy. It robs us of relationship. It leads us into sorrow and grief. But as Christians, we grieve with hope because God is the God of the living and death is not the end. And what a remarkable thing for Jacob, who has gone through such turmoil and such hardship and such suffering and seen such evil. This is a picture of long obedience in the same direction that through the sorrow, Jacob can say, we're not defined by that. And this son of mine is not defined by that. We're defined even walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We are defined by the grace of the God of all faithfulness. We are defined by his favour, by his strength, by his promises. And that is what we will be known for and that is what this son will be known by, not the sorrow of grief and loss because that doesn't get the last word on the life of God's people. And so on the outskirts of Bethlehem, the son of sorrow, is also the son of favour. And we get to be those who grieve with hope. We get to be those who know that death doesn't get the last word. We get to be those who aren't defined by grief and loss and sorrow and hardship but are defined by grace and favour and strength. Because of the God of all faithfulness and the King who would come, the real son of sorrow who is the son of favour who would be born in Bethlehem. as we see the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, listed there from verses 21 to 26, we're reminded that previously Simeon and Levi have disqualified themselves to carry on the line of blessing. We see Reuben sleeping with Bilhah and disqualifying himself from carrying on the line of blessing. And so we look in the midst of this list to the fourth son, Judah from whom the real son of sorrow the real son of favour would be born in Bethlehem As Jocelyn said we're only a couple of weeks away from our Christmas series Do you remember what the angel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1? You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. The son of sorrow, who is the son of favour, the Lord Jesus who says that death doesn't get the last word on our lives because of his death and his resurrection. We see a little hint of that once again as this story arc comes to its completion. As we see Jacob and his reconciled brother Esau at home once again, back to where we started. They're at the bedside of their father, this time to say their goodbyes and as Jacob returned home to his father Isaac, he's there with his brother Esau, we're told that Jacob breathed his last and died. He was gathered to his people, old and full of years. It's great reminders in those verses. That God is the one who gives us each breath, and one day there will be a last breath for you, as there was for Isaac. But like Isaac, death doesn't have to be the last word. He is gathered to his people. There is resurrection hope for those who have trusted in the God of all faithfulness. That you don't need to be defined by death and sorrow but by favour and faithfulness because of Jesus. And so entrust yourself to the God who gives you every breath. And entrust yourself to the God of all faithfulness who says death doesn't last, death doesn't get the last word on your life. And entrust yourself to the real son of sorrow, the son of favour, the Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah who promises that he will gather you to his people in the joy of his eternal kingdom. Every year at Anzac Day we sing the hymn, Abide With Me. As I deal with our Local RSL sub-branch. I see people who have faced death, who have watched friends die, and whose lives are racked with guilt, and whose lives are racked with grief and trauma, who long to not be defined by the sorrow that they've seen and the sorrow that they feel. And maybe if I had a little more courage, I would yell out in the middle of our Anzac service in the town hall. You need to believe the words that you're singing. You need to believe that abiding in the Lord Jesus, remaining in his love and calling him to stay with you. For long obedience in the same direction. is the way that our lives might not be defined by sorrow and grief, but by favour and faithfulness. So as we finish, why don't we pray, and I'm going to read the words of Abide With Me. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour, what but thy grace can foil the tempter's power, who like thyself my guide and strength can be, through cloud and sunshine, O abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O oh Lord, abide with me. Amen.